Hey y'all, welcome again and thanks for joining us. Uh, what we have on the docket for today is some talk about the acquisition side of the house. Um, long poles in the tent whenever we try to deliver software, usually security and acquisitions. Uh, so we brought a couple of guests with us today, uh, in Cody and Victoria, who kind of reinvented the game and did some game-changing stuff, uh, which is what drove a lot of P1 success. Uh, so before we jump into the conversation, uh, turn it over to Cody, then Victoria, to introduce themselves a little bit, and then we'll jump into it. Drew, good morning. My name is uh, Cody Paul. I'm an acquisition program manager. I've been doing this for about three years now with the government. Before that, I was in uh, contracting. I was a contracting officer for about eight years. Um, so that's kind of sort of my background. Victoria, um, also contracting. I've been contracting for the past nine years or so. Um, it's pretty much all I've done in my Air Force career, which is, you know, very exciting. And I was just brought on platform one uh, on loan just to help out. And so I was never actually officially a part of the team. I was just a member that was loaned out. <laughs> so that's pretty much my background on platform one. And, and maybe before we even get to our first question, uh, maybe to both you, both of you, um, how did you end up on the platform one team? Because I think everybody's kind of story of how you were one of the original government members is a little bit grassroots and interesting. So um, Cody, if you can chat about how you how you found this team and became a part of it, then we'll have Victoria answer the same question. Absolutely. So back in 2018, I was given my first assignment at an officer training school to the Unified Platform Program Office. Um, so worked there for about a year and a half, I would say, and did some really cool stuff. Um, and then eventually from Platform One kind of morphed over into uh, platform one. So it was, you know, directly pulled over from Unified Platform to start working uh, with the platform one team and all that, you know, the chief software officer at the time was working with the DevSecOps initiative. Victoria, what about you? So I guess my story starts before I actually PCS. Um, I was up at Hanscom uh, trying to really figure out how we can take Hanscom Air Force Base and really integrate it with that local Boston ecosystem. Because um, at the time, I felt Hanscom was like on its own little island and not really tied into anything that was going on in Boston. And there's a lot of goodness downtown. Um, and through that, I got involved with Air Force Pitch Day. And you know, I'm, I'm at the New York event, and I run into this guy named Rob Slaughter. And I am telling him all these things I'm trying to do at Hanscom. And I was like, I don't know how to get started. I'm trying. Um, do you have any recommendations? And we talked at Air Force Pitch Day. Um, and then fast forward a couple of months, I actually went to PCS from Hanscom down to the Pentagon and uh, I show up, uh, come back from my house hunting and I have this email that was sent from Rob to Nick to Dr. Roper saying the following people are now on my team. And I look at this and I was like, how, how did my name get on this? <laughs> and then of course I get lots of questions from my, my chain of command saying like, what is going on? Uh, so the original deal is I was only supposed to be on loan for about six months just to help develop the acquisition strategy. Uh, that turned into you know close to two years almost, uh, which is really cool and exciting that my leadership let me do that. But it really all started with Rob Slaughter and an email. I remember right that email actually said Victoria Weiler is the best contracting officer in the entire Air Force and we can't do anything without a contracting officer. <laughs> which is not true. Way to set me up for failure, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks both for sharing. Uh, I'm going to start with the first question then, and then Drew and I will kind of alternate facilitate a conversation here. But um, I think the first thing on my mind uh, as a computer engineer and somebody focused on really software delivery and a guy that had never, you know, even though I was on my third assignment and Cody can attest to this, I, I knew literally nothing about acquisitions. 
to the point where I asked Cody, like my first week, like, why are people putting numbers in front of money, like 3,400 and 3,600? I'm like, this is really confusing. Why are there different numbers in front of numbers? Um, just to show my own ignorance. Uh, but my impression overall, and the, maybe the, the, the most blunt way I can put it, uh, as I kind of felt like acquisition sucked and dragged me down the whole time I was trying to deliver software. So can, can you guys tell me why, why there's a perception that acquisitions is kind of the long pole in the tent? Or, or maybe the biggest barrier to success in some ways, just like cybersecurity, like Drew mentioned, when we're trying to deliver software. Well, I think before we actually answer that question, like why do you think acquisitions held you back? Yeah. From, from outside of the community, right? Like what was your perspective of the community when you first started to interact with us? Yeah, I think it's uh, it comes down to like basic team dynamics. Like every time I wanted to work on something, there seemed to be a group of people working on like the mission focused, customer driven things. And then there was a team I needed to enable me who wouldn't typically take part in those conversations, even if they were invited to. And it was really confusing to me because I'm like, well, we're all needed to deliver value and we shouldn't really be in two separate silos having different conversations. We should be coming up with a solution together. And there always just seemed to be a little bit of resistance of like living in the same world together. And instead it was like, you know, communicating back and forth over a fence, even though it was within the same like actual branch and office. Um, and, and I think ultimately everything goes back to people because I think you can have some acquisition teams that are phenomenal. But I think of all of the great acquisition teams you've worked with, they're all, you know, personality driven, right? Um, but how do you scale those personalities within that community? It's really hard. Uh, I also think acquisitions is really good at kind of protecting themselves. You know, they have their own chain of command. Um, they have their own like policies and procedures that not everyone is fully aware of. Um, so they're very good at, at isolating. And it's, it's also very daunting because I experienced this myself when I first came to Platform One, where like I came to our first meeting and I was like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Like, I feel so dumb <laughs> you know like i didn't go to school for this like i went to school for something completely different and i'm sitting in this meeting trying to understand what in the world you guys are talking about so i can actually help you get there um and so in that situation you can go one of two ways you can actually fully integrate with the team to become that you know true enabler of that team or you can just hide it at your desk behind all your policies and procedures and get everyone else to do the job for you and you just brought it so and obviously those are two extremes in my opinion but I think it's a it's a huge culture shift that needs to happen rather than viewing ourselves as its own separate community. We are there part of the team and we're never truly going to be a part of the team if we don't fully integrate and take time to learn what in the world you guys are talking about and what you're doing. And like I said, it's just you you have, I don't know how many 30 plus years of bureaucracy and regulations that have just built up over and over and over again um, to ensure that there's certain people involved in the certain processes and certain reviews. And it hasn't gotten better, right? It just keeps adding and adding and adding. And there have been initiatives to really pull that stuff away and break that stuff down, right? So how do you fight that bureaucracy that's been there for so many years uh, that was built for a different you know, time frame when we used to buy very specific requirements and we knew because we were the government experts. Uh, whereas you look at what we're buying now, it's completely different, but we're still saying we're using the same policies and procedures and they haven't really changed at the pace that I think we need to. So hopefully that that was my perspective. And, and like I know Cody mentioned, it all comes down to people and I really think it does. Um, but people affect a lot of different things, not just the culture, but the policies and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I may layer in some thoughts here as well, because uh, as I mentioned in my intro, I'm a former 6-2 officer. I went through the fundamentals of acquisition management training back in my uh, active duty days. Uh, and I just remember being one, very overwhelmed by all of the rules and all of the instructions and all of the different 
things you just had to know. I feel like I could have spent six months just reading documentation and maybe learned something about how to work within the system. Uh, but it also seemed to me like the DOD's kind of natural response when something goes wrong is add more steps in the process, uh, which from a liability standpoint totally makes sense. Uh, but at some point it just becomes this big behemoth thing where people's expertise is understanding the system uh, as opposed to how do we actually get to that value delivery um, and I think kind of where we want to take the conversation next, and you've already touched on this a little bit, Victoria, is software world and like acquisitions around it is different than the traditional, hey, we're buying hardware, we're buying specific things, we know exactly what the requirements are that we need to purchase. Can you talk a little bit about some of those differences you learned uh, through your time working with Platform One? So I came from, I did operational contracting right um which is pretty straightforward still exciting but you're working with your end users buying a specific item or service that they need and then i moved over to weapon systems and i did you know weather radars i did um, aircraft things like that you come to software completely different beast because you're not buying like an end product right um, and you have no idea what you may or may not end up with right so understanding that you need something as flexible as possible because you are something's going to change Change is the only constant in this world so how do you kind of take those principles and apply them to acquisitions when in reality we are so requirements driven and when when we say change like that that triggers a lot of different actions on our end right so how do you get out of that mindset and develop something that is flexible to really accommodate the ever-changing world of software um so in my mind that was like the biggest step we when we were first brought on the team the only thing we were told is that we have to scale DevSecOps across the DoD. By the way, you have no money and you have 45 days to do it, which was really exciting because like we had, you know, a goal and we didn't have a firm requirement. We just had concepts of what you would need for software and we were able to move very quickly. Uh, and it shows that it's possible and you can do it when you have that type of leadership and oversight, um, but it's not necessarily sustainable. When you look at, and I mentioned this before, like when we're buying certain things and the way we bought things previously, like those policies and reviews made sense because uh, we had that time. You know, you're not delivering an aircraft for X number of years. With software, you're trying to push things out, you know, every day. <laughs> so how do you take those same policies and procedures? They don't apply to what we're doing now. They need to change um, because we're not spending five years to, to get something pushed out. And if we are, that's that's bad, right? Um, so that that to me was one of the biggest differences is that we just had to really look at what can we do super flexible up front to accommodate any change that we may encounter. Um, and then you think about, I go back to the word change, in the world of software change happens so often, in the world of acquisitions, if you're changing something, you're talking about 30, 60 days, right? How do we get out of that mindset so we're keeping pace with you guys? Otherwise, we're going to get pushed out. You all are going to do shadow IT contracting and, and do it without us knowing. And that's that's what I learned. I was like, if we don't come up with a solution, this tech team, you know, Austin is going to go find a creative way to do it. And then we'll find out about it, you know, months down the road. It just really changed how we had to support in my mind um, and what we had to think of and the knowledge, right? Actually understanding what in the world this is. Um, I can understand if I'm buying an aircraft because that's some type of end product. But when you're throwing all these terms around and I don't have a technical degree, that that was tough. And then understanding why that's important to me and how I can translate that to a contract, right? No, I think Victoria captured it very well. What I will say is, you know, dealing with the unknown and, and having leadership who had your back 
uh, during that time frame was was key to our success of Platform One, I believe. And if you remember, like our goal was to be able to go from concept to contract award in 30 days. And I think the closest we got was like 40 something days. And that was like all hands on deck. And we realized that this is not sustainable. Like, Why can't we continue to do this and this be the norm? And back to people, the reviews that we put on these, our, ourselves to, to get something done. Um, even if we've done it a million different times, we still make ourselves go through the same process over and over again. Uh, and there's, there's, we always say we want to accept risk. I don't think we're actually very good at accepting risk or accepting failure. Um, I think we, we say that a lot, but when it comes down to actions, um, to Drew's point, like we put all of these policies and, and processes in place to protect ourselves. And I would love to see an environment where we're just allowed to like, hey, we've done this before, we can do it again. Let's not bother with these five different steps, right? That won't bring any value. Uh, but no one is willing to do that, right? So just my personal opinion. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good. I think one of the concepts you both hit on that I wanna pull the thread on a little bit more, maybe we'll start with Cody this time is, is uh, I think, you know, the constant change, I'm sure, I mean, I felt it even on the product side, but a lot of that, a lot of that times I had to relay that to you all on the acquisition side to keep us resourced for those changes. And I got the feeling that myself and Rob and others would, would really frustrate you guys with, uh, with a lot of our, our changes that were coming down the pike. So, so Cody, maybe a, a chance to vent or have a little bit of fun. Like what, what would you say frustrated you most about, uh, working with a product team who, you know, especially early on at the platform one days, we didn't really have what I would call product market fit. We didn't even really, we, we had a concept of DevOps and platforms, what we wanted to deliver, but we didn't really know how we were going to, you know, put those in market and do kind of business to business sales to other government PMOs. So we were changing a lot. So what, what frustrated you the most, Cody? I'm glad you brought that up, Austin. You know, at the beginning of all of this, we really had no idea, or I say we, the acquisition team had very little idea and insight because we're not the technical experts into what we were trying to accomplish and what we're trying to buy. So it was a constant reminder of like, hey team, we're doing good. You guys are okay. Like I had to always reinforce to my team that although we're frustrated, what we're going to be doing here in the near future, like is going to change the way that the DOD delivers software capability, right? But I think the initial frustration specifically from an acquisition perspective was you know, you guys were like, hey, I need 500 licenses one day. The next day you're like, oh, nope, we need a thousand licenses. Or like, hey, nope, nope, it changed to a change to a change. We don't need any licenses. So, so kind of dealing with that day in, day out frustrations of not really knowing the unknown was something that definitely gave me a high stress level trying to lead an acquisition team to support, you know, all these new and innovative software developers. Uh, so I would go back to my earlier comment about the, the shadow contracting. Um, you would come to us with these requests, which is great. And what was hard to translate is like, we're dealing with 30 plus years of bureaucracy that we're trying to break down and we want to find a solution so that we can do this in a repeatable manner. Um, but oftentimes if we didn't do it fast enough because, you know, a change happened and it needed to happen yesterday, you guys would just figure out a way to do it without us. Right. And so that was frustrating because we don't want to get cut out of the process. We're trying to be part of the process and make the process better. Um, but we're dealing with like a backlog of issues that we're trying to fix um, and personalities that aren't necessarily bought into what everyone is doing, right? They're used to the old way of doing things. That's where they're comfortable. That's where they default. So trying to get them along with us as well was, was the frustrating part. We're like, we're trying, just give us a second. <laughs> 
And by the time we figured something out, like Cody said, y'all would change your mind again. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that story Cody told us is exactly true. And I remember doing it several times. And, may, and maybe I'll footstomp one thing before Drew asked the next question, which is, you know, I think Cody hit the nail on the head, like constantly explaining why to your team internally, right? Because I think a lot of times we miss that context, especially at the individual contributor level, um, whether that be product or acquisitions. And the other thing is too, is like, I think the way we combated that, and this has been a pervasive problem at platform one is like, how do you keep the acquisition team and the product teams and the scaling organization in sync? And, you know, I think the use of our daily standups and cross communicating there was really helpful, basically looking through the backlog and prioritizing it literally on a daily basis from these changing requirements, running the acquisition team like that was super helpful. And then I can't even count the number of hours, like the three of us spent on the phone together just throughout the day, just on phone calls, resyncing even throughout the day, especially early on. So I think like, like most things in life, it comes down to communication and trust. And I think uh, we built that over time. But that like personality driven, because you could have gotten someone that like didn't want to be a part of the team that just never answered their phone and you wouldn't have built that relationship and that trust, right? So it goes back to that personality that wants to be involved. And I think in a lot of software centric organizations, like the technical side, more or less, it has people that want to make this change, right? They are driving this change. And that doesn't necessarily translate on the acquisition side. You're kind of, you know, dragging them along at first to get them to understand what this change is, why it's important and how they can really impact it. Um, in some organizations, you have folks that like want to do it and other organizations, they're, they've inherited this problem, right? Um, and that's not necessarily something that they signed up for. One of the other things I want to talk about too is, you know, a lot of times in the technical world, we talk about tech debt. What a lot of folks understand is there's also acquisition debt. So playing cleanup and catch up whenever things are done from a previous administration or a previous group is, is very taxing on the acquisition team. So, you know, a lot of my time was spent not only trying to figure out how to provide value day from present day, but also from cleaning up the messes I would call that folks had, had put on our plate as well. So, you know, our team was definitely busy and I give them credit. Yeah, and that's a great analogy, Cody, for our world, the, the idea of tech debt and acquisition debt. Because I think, you know, especially for me per personally, not having a lot of experience, um, I had no idea the second, third, fourth level impacts of making a change and how much that affects a financial manager and a buyer and like all these other people that the product teams like never see really, right? Because you're like, you know, you're like elves back in the tree getting everything ready and, and the rest of us don't really know until we see the outcome. Um, and I think, I think that's what you know, you and Victoria worked really well together because you, you had somebody kind of constantly looking at the big picture and where we needed to go, but also somebody constantly driving the team on day-to-day -day execution as well. And it's really hard to accomplish anything without a partnership like that. Well, I'll just say Cody was all about accountability. I was good cop. He was bad cop. Right. So I was like the good idea fairy. He was like, we can do everything guys. And Cody was like, eh, let's rein this, <laughs> this in a little bit. And he was like, we need to make sure someone is doing X, Y, and Z. And, and he followed through with that accountability, which I think uh, is missing in our career field as a whole, uh, really pushing people to be responsible and get things done uh, when they need to be done. So we've had a lot of good conversation and somewhat dance maybe around the concepts here. Uh, but the next question is going to be really related to like, at the end of the day, what we're here for is value delivery to end users, right? And we're all on that same page there, but the communication is somewhat difficult sometimes. Uh, one of the best tools we utilized at Platform One in a lot of regards was this concept of a value stream map. How do we get from idea to actual end value uh, for the user uh, utilizing the, the Netflix and Blockbuster example and the Netflix's evolution over time is, is one I love to go through because it really helps paint that picture. Uh, but 
there's so much more to the value delivery than just the technical side. And maybe that's where we somewhat missed the boat a little bit. Uh, but from your guys' perspective, like end-to-end -end chain, who who's actually required to deliver value? So who's actually required to deliver? I think it's everyone. Um, and I feel like that's a cop-out answer, but it's it's true. Um, going from you know your buyer to your ML, um, everyone needs to be bought in to actually get this done. So, I mean, you can't do anything if you don't have your funding document, right? You can't do anything if your buyer doesn't put together the, the draft contract. Uh, and you really can't move forward if you don't have an ML that really understands acquisitions and is willing to go to bat for you, right? So everyone has their own specific role um, to really, you know, be responsible for specific things so you can deliver. When I, when I think about how do you deliver on a contract in like pre-award, right? Let me focus on that before you actually get the people that you need. It was really everyone taking their specific jobs and figuring out what needed to change to make it move faster. Um, but I couldn't do that because I'm not an FM specialist, right? I couldn't do that for, for Cody because technically I'm not a PM. So it, it really took everyone, you know, coming to the table and saying like, how can I personally change in my job, my career field to make things different and make things easier so we can deliver. Uh, and it took a whole revamp of the entire team. Yeah, no, so I'm a huge proponent of uh, extreme ownership. So accountability is, is extremely important, especially if you're trying to, to provide or deliver any value or capability specifically to a warfighter. So, you know, to me, it's, it's intrinsic in nature to, to hold myself accountable and make sure I'm doing the best that I can do in my role uh, and everything within my sphere of influence to make sure that, you know, that end user gets what they need. And for us, the end user was obviously the, the developers um, and the leadership team at Platform One at the time. So yeah, I, I agree 100%. It takes, it takes a team. It's not just solely on one person. While one person may be held accountable at the end of the day, um, you know, in order to have a, a well-balanced and a well-oiled machine, you, everyone has to do their part. Our team at Platform One acquisition-wise really had a sense and, and a sense of, of what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish specifically um, with the DoD and changing the way that we deliver software capability. Yeah, thanks, Cody. I think uh, one of the things that I learned to appreciate and maybe to draw some corollaries to the product side is that, you know, when we want to develop software, we can partner with a lot of great people from the defense industrial base to write software. When I need to award contracts or do program management or financial management, you can't award contracts to people to come in and help your team do that. It's an inherently government function. And, and we do have ANAS and FFRDC support, but at the end of the day, somebody on the government side has to sign their name to things. And so there's this inability really to like surge up people on acquisitions, unlike there is on the product side, which is like a major constraining factor in a lot of ways, right? And why it's so critical that we have acquisition professionals who kind of understand this world. The other thing I find super interesting is like when we, when we write software, we have certain people with certain permissions to different tools, right? That can kind of cross-functionally help out or swarm problems. Uh, on the acquisition side, right? Like even as a contracting officer, you can't sign the funding documents and like vice versa. So there's all there's almost for for good reasons there's checks and balances through the process, but we can't have like a a cross functional contracting officer or program manager because there's inherent checks and balances in the line, which somewhat drives a little bit of a sequential waterfall process, and that's why like working as a team and being on the same page and communicating and understanding the why is so important because those things take even longer when there's gaps in information. But there are things you can fix that right like you can force people to do reviews concurrently. Like you can get people out of that habit of doing, all right, I'm not gonna review it until 
this person has and that person has like it's just a mindset shift and and i think with you know someone like cody who's very extreme in accountability he he drove that right he's like no we're gonna have this meeting everyone's gonna attend this meeting and at the end of this meeting yeah his knife hand came out uh this is gonna get done uh so i i think that's possible um it's just a mindset sh mindset shift and the other thing it's not necessarily who is required but more of a what is required I don't think our community does a good job of enablement. Uh, you talk about how you're able to have someone, you, know, you can pair program. Where does that exist in acquisitions? How often do we actually truly collaborate across the different software centric organizations? I wouldn't say as, as often as we need to, right? And what is our form of enablement? Like how do we actually scale and spread this beyond DAU or PowerPoint slides, right? How are we actually helping people come up with ideas, think through strategies and get them to an end goal uh, and kind of be that advocate for them to do this change. I don't think that exists. Um, it doesn't exist at scale. Uh, and I think that's what's really needed to deliver and really scale what we're doing beyond platform one. And at the end of the day, like mission comes first. So organizations are always going to be focused on executing their mission first before helping others. And I, I think it would be great to get our, our community thinking of how do I really help others beyond just giving them a training deck of what I did, right? How do I actually help them with different ideas? So I would love to see the community take that step forward. Yeah, and that's a that's a great transition to the question I wanted to ask next, getting a little bit more into some uh, maybe nuts and bolts or more technical parts of the contracting and PM world. Um, and this is something that like myself, I still haven't grasped a good strategy on. So interested in both you and Cody's thoughts and we'll, we'll force Cody to start this time since it sounds like he's back in a place as reception. Um, you know, one of the topics that comes up a lot as we're collaborating with others is how do you measure value, uh, value delivery, right? Because we're, like you mentioned earlier, Victoria, we're not buying like an F-35 at the end that like rolls off a flight line and flies in the air, right? Where we can like see the value. Software, we're basically paying for services with changing requirements and delivery mechanisms. And so the question often comes up when you're in these acquisition strategy panels and such, like, well, how are you, if you use contract type X, how are you going to measure value from the contracting teams? And, and that's a really, really difficult question to answer. So uh, can you can you both take a stab at how you measure value in this world then? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think it's something that we initially struggled with um, whenever we, we started out on the, the journey of awarding all of our contracts to Platform One was like, what are the deliverables that are going to gauge the value um, that is being delivered by our you know, industry partners? Um, and I don't think we got it right off the bat. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to performance metrics, right? Understanding exactly what you want to measure, how you want to measure it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we shouldn't be worried or concerned about our obligations and, and expenditures. We should be worried about if the warfighter is getting the capability that they need in order to succeed, right? So a lot of times, and, you know, it was indoctrinated to me when I first came into the career field was like, Hey, obligations and expenditures, this, these are important. If you don't have your obligations and expenditures green by, you know, spring, guess what? Spring program reviews going to come around and your, your portfolio is going to get cut. Um, I don't think we should be focusing on that. I think we should be focusing on delivering capability and that should be our measurement of value. And, you know, we really should be surveying our end customers and end users and having them judge us on how we're delivering to them right at the end of the day. So that's kind of my take on it. I'll pass it over to Victoria. I'll build on that. Build on that. I think it's twofold, right? So um, 
Cody mentioned, how do you, why aren't we doing our user feedback, right? Why aren't we coming to you and saying, are you getting the people you need? Like, are they good? Are they doing their job? Um, I don't think we're very good at that because honestly, we're just so happy to be at the point of contract award. We'll take anything, right? I know that sounds awful, but it just took us so long to get there. We're like, I hope this person's good. Um, but honestly, when we before we even award a contract, there are things that we're doing, um, testing out to see if we can get the talent that you need. And I don't think we're, you know, taking the feedback back and reincorporating it into the contracting process because that process takes so long, right? Um, so that's the first part, like, are you actually getting the talent that you need to get what you need done? Uh, is there that level of accountability? It goes back to the performance metrics. I would love to start incorporating those performance metrics into the actual contracting documents. Uh, and we wanted to go there. I, we didn't get there when Cody and I were on the team, um, but that was one of our goals. And I think the other end of it is, you know, from the industry perspective, um, I know from industry, like, it's probably super annoying for them to get an RFP and then, you know, maybe 90 days later, they might get a contract award if they're lucky, right? So are the things we're doing providing value to them so they can make business decisions for in the best interest of their company? Uh, I always thought it was very interesting when we did that industry feedback on like, how is this process for you? Um, they say it'd be great, but you know, we can't hold on to these key personnel forever. So if you could at least make a decision quickly, like I can decide whether or not I need to keep them on or put them on a different project. So there, there's value on both sides for contracting, not just end user, but who we're actually interfacing. Our process is making it easier for industry to do work with us, right? Um, and so we strive to get that feedback. And I think we collected that feedback, but what we didn't do was incorporate that feedback back into the process, because like I said, that process is so long that that cycle, it's, it's hard to keep it, keep it going, right? Because we're just happy to have a contract awarded. Yeah, I was just going to mention one thing there, which is I think we missed a lot of the time and we got better at over time, but I, I see happen a lot, which is just the level of empathy for our contractor partners, right? Like there's a temptation I see a lot culturally to like treat them differently, but at the end of the day, we're reliant on them to be successful as teammates, right? And, and their personnel are highly talented and they have a hard time retaining talent as well. And the better you have those relationships and empathy towards their position in the contracting world from their side of the fence, it, it, to me, that's where you strengthen partnerships and get the best people. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure Drew knows a lot about that too from being on the other side, but I'll, I'll pass it back over to him. Yeah, just a little bit. And wanted to tack on a little bit to some of that conversation because one of the what I think is the most interesting and great things about platform one is this concept of the government owns the entire tech baseline and no contracting company owns any specific piece or product line, et cetera. Um, from a, how do we measure contractual value? Was it difficult or did you guys have to get creative to set up this environment where we have mixed vendor teams, uh, where people from different companies work together to deliver the value because that's a, at the end of the day, what we care about. So I, I would say we had to get creative in how we structure our contracts, right? We try to make things flexible on the front end um, to allow for multiple awards, to allow for multiple contractor teams, but it also took industry's involvement as well. Like there had to be, they had to be willing to do this. I think, uh, and this is just from my perception, a lot of industry members are hesitant um, to be in a mixed contractor team because if something doesn't go right, who's gonna be responsible, right? Um, so there's a level of, of concern there on industry's perspective but we did a lot on our end to just see how could we make it as flexible as possible up front 
make multiple awards, do them quickly, get the members that we need, get the right people, key personnel, um, you know, actually, you know, the, the oral presentations, get the right people involved. So we tried, like I said, but we got lots of good feedback and I would love to see that feedback continuously incorporated. And so Cody, did I miss anything? Yeah, so one of the things I want to point out, you know, we, we obviously wanted to change the way that we we're doing business with our industry partners. And I think, you know, Victoria, I'll definitely give her credit for this. She made it a point for us to contact the majority of our vendor teams to, to get that feedback and provide that feedback to them as well on, you know, hey, how's this process working for you? This is how it's kind of working on our side. Um, obviously, we didn't go into details about source selections or anything like that, but getting that that industry response to how we were doing business, I think was was key. And it, it's it's key to moving forward, I think, um, with our industry partners. You know, we talk about working in silos in the government, but guess what? We work in silos with industry partners as well. Until we can truly integrate them into our teams and have them as a true mission partner, like that's whenever we're gonna start really reaping the benefits and success working with the DIB. And, and one, one last thing to add. So like we mentioned all these things we did up front, right? Um, and the flexibilities that we built in, you know, we did things like smaller option periods and all those sound really, really great modular contracting. That's a great buzzword. It's there's value in it, uh, but it's hard to sustain when your acquisition team is not properly resourced. So all these things sound great, but it is an additional burden on the team to can keep these things going. And that same thing applies to all these flexible things we put in place. Uh, gathering that industry feedback, it takes dedicated time and resources to do it. At the end of the day, they're still responsible for executing that contract, right? Um, so how do you balance that? Uh, so you're continuously improving, but you're also getting your job done. Yeah, and one thing I will say is, you know, and I'm just pointing this out. I had the exact same makeup of an acquisition team whenever we, I started at Platform One as whenever I left Platform One. So just to tell you, you know, like, the scale of what we did, guess what? The acquisition team did not scale with everything that we were doing with our, our contracts and acquisition strategy. So just pointing that out. And I was a freebie. I wasn't even officially on the team. So <laughs> pretty incredible to think about uh, like the amount that team was able to produce because we scaled from what 20 ish people to 250 in an eight month time frame, which is, I don't know, 20 plus contracts. And that was all that same group of people that Initial, had that initial load. Uh, so some definite, definite miracles were happening behind the scenes that I don't even know that everyone on the P1 team fully appreciates. So uh, since we don't thank you enough, thank you one last time. Kind of one last kind of quick question here. Uh, and then we have a fun bonus question we share with everybody. We've talked about this quite a bit already, but I think the training aspect and how we get other people uh, in the mindset and in, involved in some of the great things that happen on the platform one acquisition side of the house. Uh, so ending here is great. What, how do we get people to think differently about software acquisitions? Uh, it goes back to what I said earlier. It goes back to that concept of enablement. Sometimes I feel like a broken record, but there's such value in enablement. Uh, when people are exposed to this new world and new way of thinking, like sometimes they get really excited and they want to do it. Um, and, and there's value in bringing them in and showing them all the goodness of Platform One. Lots of people have good ideas and creating an environment where they can go after those good ideas is what's key. I don't think we do that enough. I think there are a lot of great programs out there 
um, that you know get people exposed to, to new and different things, but then we spit them back out into a traditional program office by themselves and expect them to make change, it's really hard to make change by yourself. So how do you create that enablement to really help those folks make that difference? And we don't do it right now. So like I said, I, I, go, I always go back, I always default to enablement because I feel like there's such room for improvement in that area, uh, specifically for acquisitions. And I can only imagine all of the good ideas we would get if we brought in new people on a continuous basis and then tested them out. But our, our environment isn't flexible enough to do that yet. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll echo. I, I believe 100% it's enablement. I think it's empowerment. And I think it's opportunity as well. Um, having folks do things like, you know, you know, Victoria talks about enablement. Well, guess what? From her enablement idea, there's now a course you can take digital DNA through OSD with Ms. Tori Cuff, uh, Ms. Lori, uh, Lorianne Rizzler. Um, those folks stood that up just based off of the feedback that they were getting um, with software acquisitions. So, you know, there's courses and things you can do out there, but at the end of the day, I think actually experiencing and executing it is key to success, right? So, you know, we tried our best to, to invite everyone to understand what we're trying to accomplish with our acquisition teams at Platform One. We were providing training. We were, you know, allowing people to shadow. We set up the residency program. We had folks come in from different organizations to literally sit with us for six months to, to experience how we were changing the way that, you know, we were delivering in acquisitions, specifically software acquisitions. So, yeah, I, I think it's definitely those three things that we, we have to get after in order to change. And to add to that, uh, I think we need to start valuing actual acquisition experience. I think, especially on the military side, where we value, you know, go do this, go do that. Oh, and then come back. You're going to lead an acquisition organization, but you have two years as a PEM, right? And that's just a random example, but that has to change. How do we actually develop acquisition professionals that understand the job? So you can hold people accountable. So you can incorporate new ideas and figure out how to do things. Because uh, I think it all goes back to risk. If you don't know your job, you're not you you're not comfortable taking any risk, right? Or you're not comfortable with trying anything new out because maybe you don't understand how to incorporate a new idea into our current policies and procedures. So I, I think it goes full circle. We need to start valuing acquisitions as a community, uh, as a career field, and actually get people the experience they need to lead, you know, new ideas in software-centric organizations. Yeah, and I think the, the collaboration piece is key. I think a lot of times people think of enablement as a one-way road, like a mentor teaching a mentee. But what, what I think, you know, what I realized is to kind of grow this movement of a different way of doing software delivery in the DoD. It's a, it's a two-way street collaborating on ideas. And honestly, like really nothing at Platform One was that original of anything. It was just a, when you talk to like, you know, 20 different really smart people from across the DoD, you collectively create better ideas as a team and you go experiment with them and try and you keep adapting. And I think um, that's more common, I think, on the software side than it is the acquisition side, but it's hopefully becoming more normal for acquisition professionals. Cody and I spent, I don't know, we, we did so many engagements with other acquisition teams to steal the really good ideas. You're like, tell us what you did that worked really well so we can steal it. The issue is you can take those ideas and then try to incorporate them, but oftentimes you get pushback because why would you do anything proactive? You already have a contract in place, right? So we're a very much reactive organization. We're not going to move forward unless we have a firm requirement and funding. How can we look at new ideas and put things that are proactive, ready to go when we need it, or just figure out a way to walk away from a contract and start over, right? 
uh, do something that might work better. But it goes back to that risk and, and taking these ideas back into a process that takes so long already. Okay, yeah, I would say there, there was definitely no pride of ownership in what we were doing. We were literally talking to anyone and everyone who had ideas. And, you know, we, we would try them out and we'd fail fast and we'd figure out what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, with the contract vehicle we set up, the DevSecOps BOAs, um, we were providing training and we literally had programs come to us and we're like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we had, you know, multiple organizations who awarded millions of dollars of contracts off of those vehicles that we stood up based off of the training that we provided. So another feather in the hat. Yeah, I think the, you know, going back to the the P1 kind of why and belief statement, I think, you know, we were, we were big, we are big believers in open source and the idea of having everything out there and being transparent. And I think the same concepts apply to our acquisition team originally too, right? Like let's, it doesn't matter whose idea it is. Let's collaborate together. Let's come up with the best possible solution. And obviously we can't put our acquisition stuff out to the whole world as open source, but the same concept like inside the DOD acquisitions world is definitely possible. Um, all right. And so we're, we're coming up on time, but I do want to end the, the episode with my, my favorite part, which is uh, having some of the, the original people that were on the team tell their favorite story about Platform One. Um, it can be whatever, whatever part you want, uh, people involved, whoever you want to name drop. Give us your favorite uh, P1 story you reflect back on, and then we'll have Victoria answer the same thing. So there's a lot, obviously, but I, I really think that sort of the inception of when Platform One actually started, right? So, you know, I had never been to the Pentagon in my career at the time. It was like I was 16 years in, and, you know, within a span of three months, I think I went to the Pentagon three times. And so that first initial meeting that we had at the Pentagon to really stand up Platform One with all of you know the OGs, I guess you could say the founders of Platform One, uh, with Nick in the room, kind of laying out expectations and letting everyone know, like, hey, this is a flat organization. Everyone has good ideas. Everyone's value is, or everyone's ideas are valued and opinions. So, you know, like, it doesn't matter what your rank is. Um, we're gonna move out. We're gonna move fast, and we're gonna move forward. So, you know, that Pentagon visit, I think, with eight of us, I guess you could say, uh, in the room, kind of really shed light to what we're about to set out and start accomplishing. The other one I will say though, I wanted to bring up is kind of how we synced up with Space Camp, right? So I remember I was sitting in my cubicle at Lackland Air Force Base and I, we read an article about Space Camp and all they were doing with, you know, DevSecOps and CATOs and all that good stuff. And I literally found someone's name in the article. I found them on the gal. I cold called a Master Sergeant Jeff McCoy and said, dude, we like what you're doing. We want to come visit you. And I think that was on a Monday. And I think we were up there on a Wednesday. And that's when we met Jeff McCoy, Matt Houston, and Rob Slaughter. And literally everything shifted from what we were doing at Unified Platform. And then we we rolled over into Platform One. So I think that was that was kind of like one of the, the moments that, the aha moments. So th this is tough. Favorite story. <laughs> so I have a lot of things that I miss about Platform One, right? I miss being able to work with people that I respected, enjoyed working with, um, that ultimately became my friends. How often can you like willingly call up anyone on your team and, and have a straightforward conversation and come up with a way to get something done? Uh, I've never experienced that before prior to Platform One. So I, I truly miss that. I miss how Cody used to just populate my calendar with all these random meetings because he would do all the networking on LinkedIn. And then he would just intro. He's like, I'm going to introduce you to Victoria. Okay, Victoria, just start talking. And because I can talk for hours or I could talk to a brick wall. So like, <laughs> I miss that because it was just a great relationship. 
And then I think if I had to pick a story, I did a, a source selection just because you mentioned Jeff McCoy. Uh, if you ever want to get him on your good side, just offer him to be a part of a source selection team. It's his favorite thing in the whole wide world. Uh, so just that whole experience with him and trying to get him to understand that there, this is important. Like, I need you to be a part of this because you're smart and you know what you want. He just was miserable the entire time. But then I sat in a room with uh, Nick and I just watched him eat cookies and like San Pellerinas all day. I was like, how do you live off this diet? <laughs> but he just kept going. Like, that's all he does is just eat cookies and like San Pellerinas. So uh, little things and little experiences like that. Yeah, to add a little uh, extra context to those, those are some great stories. Uh, you know, for those that don't know Jeff McCoy, he seems to work like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. most days. And so like getting him to come to meetings, like I think the success rate of getting him to a meeting was like less than 20%, let alone check his email. Um, so getting to the sit through with source selection as a software developer was was nothing short of magic by Victoria and Cody. And then uh, I honestly, I credit Cody with a, the kind of the union of the teams that made and formed Platform One, because I still remember the day he printed off the Space Camp Survival Guide, which I think Drew and others helped write. And I read that it was like 10 pages. It was super comical, full of memes. It was like an enjoyable read, but also super informative. And like, I, 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 I did the same thing. I found Rob Slaughter's name in it. And I was like, oh, there's some you know token major over there. Let me call him up. I remember calling him on the phone and I, I called him sir because I was a cap at the time. And he immediately interrupted me. He said, don't you ever call me sir again. And I was like, oh, this is going to be an interesting relationship and wild ride. And and Cody's right, within like 48 hours, like really we took nearly a 180 degree pivot of what we were doing in San Antonio. And that's kind of how, how P1 started. But I, I never would have found them had Cody. Cody has this gift, Victoria knows this too, to always know everything that happens like on social media related to acquisitions. Cody's like constantly sending us in a text group, like every contract award, everybody else is doing. So like, if you're out there doing something and it's on the internet, Cody will find you. And that's uh, the beauty of that is how kind of uh, this team met each other. <laughs> Yeah, and he's the only person I know that sends contracting memes. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I always jokingly laugh at them, but I, I honestly have no idea what they mean or why they're funny. I just let you two laugh at them. Uh, okay, so uh, that, that's it for this episode. One of our longer ones, I think, uh, but it was super enjoyable for me. I think acquisitions doesn't get enough play in these conversations because of it's just how important it is, right? Acquisition happens left of everything else that goes on in this world. And if you don't get that right, you just end up doing a bunch of rework really for months and months on end. And so um, appreciate uh, Victoria and Cody dropping by the, the Platform One podcast. Uh, hopefully, you know, I think we hit on the surface level of a number of really interesting topics that come up, like measuring contractual value in this way, modular contracting, um, the, the BOAs that we stood up and where we wanted to iterate on. And just there, there's a lot of collaboration. Hopefully there's some discussion that goes on afterwards. And I'm happy to post Cody and Victoria's personal cell phone numbers on the public internet for people to find them and ask follow-up questions. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye.